This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the governor's facing backlash over claims that his administration is manipulating the official stats for COVID-19 and unemployment claims. Democrats in the state legislature are dismissing the governor's claim that the unemployment system is working now, and 97% of valid claims have been paid. All I can think of when I hear the governor speaking is like, are you trying to take us to dreamland? Because that's where I think that you're headed here. The governor and DEO have a lot of work ahead of them still. This is not time for a victory lap. We need to be doing the real work now and pay the claims. They're also demanding an investigation into the firing of the woman who took part in the design of the state's computerized dashboard that tracks coronavirus cases after she raised concerns about data being hidden from the public. More prison inmates are testing positive for COVID-19. There are almost 1,200 confirmed cases now in the state corrections system. There's a new COVID-19 scam you need to be aware of. Con artists claiming to be doing contract traces for the health department are trying to get your personal information. Teacher unions in Florida were not invited to take part in the governor's reopening task force, and the state education commissioner ignored their request to create separate committees on opening schools. So the Florida Education Association and the United Faculty of Florida have set up their own committees. Vice President of the FEA, Andrew Spar, is our guest today on the Sunrise Interview. You'll hear more today from Senator Marco Rubio about coronavirus. We'll get the 50,000-foot view from the man who chairs the Senate Intelligence Committee. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and check in with a Florida man who just got out of prison and is already back behind bars after he was discovered in a stranger's kitchen without a shred of clothing. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Thursday, May 21st. The latest report from the state health department shows there have been 47,471 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Florida. The death toll has reached 2,173. That's 44 more than the day before. But can we trust the numbers? The state's entire reporting system is now a gigantic question mark after one of the women involved in designing the health department tracking system was fired for suggesting data is being manipulated to make things look better than they really are. Rebecca Jones was terminated by the health department after she went public with her concerns, and State Senator Janet Cruz of Tampa says we should all be worried about what's really going on at the Department of Health. You know, she was a brave woman who refused to fudge the numbers, and she was punished for it, and that's wrong. And, you know, I think that we'll see some kind of lawsuit come back under some whistleblower protection because um, not only was she removed from putting uh, the, the information on, but then, you know, she was let go and it's wrong. It's just wrong. It speaks again to the transparency and how they shut people down if they're not um, singing from the same hymn book and if they're not drinking the Kool-Aid. It's just wrong here. I really, um, I feel very badly for her. And as a woman in particular, I feel the need to rally behind her and say, you did the right thing. Um and I'm sorry that this has happened to you. Senator Jose Javier Rodriguez has already requested a formal investigation into the firing. And Senator Lori Berman says the allegations of data manipulation during a pandemic are troubling, to say the least. We need to find out more about this because if this is an effort to change the accuracy of the statistics, what is going on in our state? Why would they be doing that? Um, and they, that, that we are making public policy decisions based on that information. And if it's being falsified, we need to know that right now. 
Internal emails indicate Jones resisted when her bosses told her to remove raw data from the health department's COVID tracking website, which prevented users from downloading that information for analysis. The official reason for the firing is insubordination, but the governor stepped up his criticism Wednesday, throwing Jones under the bus and then putting it into reverse to trash the media for reporting her story. She's not a data scientist. She's somebody that's got degree in journalism, communication, and geography. She is not involved in collating any data. She does not have the expertise to do that. She is not an epidemiologist. She is not the, the chief architect of our web portal. That is another false statement. And what she was doing was she was putting data on the portal, which the scientists didn't believe was valid data. So she didn't listen to the people who were her superiors. She had many people above her in the chain of command. Um, and so then so she was dismissed because of that and because of a bunch of different reasons about how she did. Come to find out, she's also under active criminal uh, charges in the state of Florida. She's being charged with uh, cyber stalking and cyber sexual harassment. So I've asked the Department of Health to explain to me how someone would be allowed to be charged with that and continue on, because this was many months ago. I have a zero tolerance policy uh, for sexual harassment. So her supervisor dismissed her because uh, of, of a lot of those reasons, and it was a totally valid way, but she should have been dismissed long before that. Our data is available. Our data is transparent. In fact, Dr. Burks has talked multiple times about how Florida has the absolute best data. So any insinuation otherwise is just typical partisan narrative trying to be spun. And part of the reason is that because you got a lot of people in your profession who waxed poetically for weeks and weeks about how Florida was going to be just like New York. Wait two weeks, Florida's going to be next. Just like Italy, wait two weeks. Well, hell, we're eight weeks away from that, and it hasn't happened. Not only do we have a lower death rate, well, we have way lower deaths generally, we have a lower death rate than the Acela Corridor, D.C., everyone up there. We have a lower death rate than the Midwest, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio. But even in our region, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida has the lower death rate. And I was the number one landing spot from tens of thousands of people leaving the number one hot zone in the world to come to my state. So we've succeeded, and I think that people just don't want to recognize it because it challenges their narrative, it challenges their assumption, so they got to try to find a boogeyman. Maybe it's that there are black helicopters circling the Department of Health. If you believe that, um, I got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you. Vice President Mike Pence was standing next to the governor as he unloaded on the 26-year-old woman who has roiled his administration. Jones is not talking now, but stay tuned for a whistleblower lawsuit. The governor's second transparency problem is unemployment. The system collapsed after more than a million Floridians tried to file claims, and it's been vexing DeSantis for two months. During Tuesday's COVID-19 update, the governor claimed the system is finally working and people are getting paid. It's taken a lot of work. This is still not the best designed system. Uh, but almost a million unique, complete, and eligible applicants. And of that, you have 97.6% uh, has received payment. So now you're in a situation, 975,656 Floridians uh, have been processed and have received payment. But if everything is working and people are getting paid, Senator Lori Berman wonders why the operators manning Florida's unemployment hotline received more than a million calls on Monday alone. One million times people tried to contact them. People are not getting answers. They don't know what to do. The call centers have been a disaster. 
We know that the people working there haven't been trained, don't know what to do. Their supervisors aren't trained. We've had people out of state who have no connection with Florida who don't understand anything at all about our unemployment insurance. The governor was very proud of the fact that we put out $2.6 billion. But look at the state of Michigan, which is a lot smaller state than us. They've spent $5.6 billion. And the state of California, which is a bigger state, has spent $11 billion. We have, are not helping the people of our state. We've got to do a lot more for the people of our state. And the governor and the and DEO have a lot of work ahead of them still. And they shouldn't, There's this is not time for a victory lap. We need to be doing the real work now and pay the claims. And Senator Janet Cruz is wondering about a half million applications that were rejected by the state unemployment office without explanation. You know, I'm listening to the governor speak and I think about the number of calls that we are still fielding and the people that are crying on the phone, threatening their to commit suicide. They, they're desperate. They don't know what to do. And all I can think of when I hear the governor speaking is like, are you trying to take us to dreamland? Because that's where I think that you're headed here. I, I he talks about he talks about people filling out um, applications incorrectly as if that's a serious issue. And believe me, folks, it is not. Um, he talks about social security numbers that are not correct. And get this, he also mentioned your last name. They didn't put their last name. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You're talking about people that can't put food on the table and you think they would forget their last name or that they would not put the right social security number in. Guess what? When you go to log in, your sign on is your social security number. So you better get that right. Excuses, excuses, excuses. And do not sugarcoat this and do not disrespect these people that have done everything that we asked of them and still are not eligible. This is a disaster still. So do not take us to dreamland, Governor. We are far from okay here. If you try to reach one of those state call centers, be prepared to wait on the phone for about an hour and a half. Now that's not a random complaint. The warning actually comes from the guy in charge of the system. Corrections officials report 72 new COVID-19 cases among state prisoners on Wednesday. That brings the total number of inmates who've tested positive to 1,191. The largest increase came at South Bay Correctional Facility. That's a private prison in Palm Beach County operated by the GEO Group. They have 106 confirmed cases among the prisoners. That's a one-day increase of 38. There is a new scam making the rounds, and of course they're trying to take advantage of the pandemic. Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed says her Consumer Services Office is warning you to watch out for COVID-19 tracing scams. The way it works is that someone sends you a text or calls claiming they're a tracer for the health department. You've been listed as a contact for someone who tested positive. They'll then ask for your personal information or even give you a link for a fraudulent website that loads malware on your phone or computer. If you get one of these text messages or phone calls, Freed says you should report it at 1-800-HELP-FLA or visit visit FloridaConsumerHelp.com to file a complaint. Next up, the smartest man in the U.S. Senate. At least that's what I'm calling Marco Rubio now that he's been named interim chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. On Wednesday's podcast, we heard Rubio talk about the reopening of Florida during the pandemic. Today, we get his take on the big picture, what business types like to call the 50,000-foot view. I think if you project moving forward, uh, there is a couple things about this pandemic that I think will serve as a hinge point in history that will forever change uh, our behavior. Number one is I do think it's revealed some vulnerabilities and parts of our supply chain in this country 
that people are going to want to examine, not, not just because of the pandemic's impact on our country, because I think we're going to enter an era where you're going to see a growing number of countries begin to protect their supply chains. So as an example, uh, already eight or nine of the major economies in the world have designated medical equipment and pharmaceuticals as a national uh, priority and have on occasion placed restrictions on the export of these uh, products and devices abroad. Likewise, I think a lot of people were shocked. We're so dependent on foreign sources of production for things as simple as masks and gowns to protect our, um, our personnel uh, on the front lines, on the medical front lines of this pandemic. So I think there's going to be a natural sort of reaction to that. And I'm also very curious to see what happens in the EU. Um, and that would have an impact as well on our economy, ultimately, because uh, depending on how things turn out in the EU, uh, you could foresee where forces within Europe will use this as an opportunity to, to sort of become more nationalistic and less pan-European um, moving forward. And, and, but that will ultimately have an impact on, on our trade and, and commerce uh, from a transatlantic point of view. And then obviously this, the situation with China has gotten uh, more difficult, uh, both uh, in our politics and also in our geopolitical uh, and diplomatic realm. And I've always said that the relationship between the United States and China will define the 21st century. So it's a, it's a moment where I think a lot of things are changing that we can't fully anticipate what those changes ultimately result in. But I, I'm, I think I'm pretty comfortable in saying that the world in our country in both economic and political, for economic and political realm are gonna be substantially altered after this pandemic passes, no matter how it, it, it turns out. Senator Rubio was speaking in a video conference hosted by the American Enterprise Institute. Next up on Sunrise, a conversation with Andrew Sparr, the vice president of the Florida Education Association. The teachers union was not invited to take part in the governor's task force to reopen Florida, so the FEA and the United Faculty of Florida are creating their own committees to figure out the best way to reopen schools, colleges, and universities. You're listening to the Sunrise podcast from Florida Politics. And we're much obliged. Florida Hospital Association members are safe, ready, and equipped to care for all Floridians. As our hospitals resume elective procedures, ensuring the safety and well-being of our patients, employees, and communities remains our first priority. Contact your local health care provider for information on visitation policies, access restrictions, and how to get needed care safely. Please visit the Florida Hospital Association at fha.org/covid for more information. Welcome back to Sunrise. When the governor created his task force to reopen the Sunshine State, teachers were pretty much left off the list. So the Florida Education Association asked the state education commissioner to create separate committees to plan for the reopening of public schools and higher ed. The commissioner never responded, so the unions are doing it without him. Joining us now is Andrew Sparr, vice president of the FEA. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, good, good. Hello. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty good. So, Andrew, I guess they pretty much forced your hand on this one, didn't they? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, look, at the end of the day, we, we don't think just educators, but we think parents and um, and medical experts and mental health professionals should be part of the conversation of how and the best way to reopen our schools uh, at the start of the next school year. And so we felt we had to bring people together from all constituency groups to really have a fair and full conversation about what is best for our kids and for the people who work in our schools. Why do you think there was no response from either the governor or the education commissioner on this? I think in some respects, it's business as usual. You know, they we have seen in, from, from our state for some time that they don't respect the profession of educating students. They don't uh, respect the experts, the teachers, the people who work in our schools, uh, the administrators and the parents. 
they think they know what's best for our schools without having to consult them. And we just think that's uh, a ridiculous way of doing business. And it's time not to do business as usual. It's time to actually listen to the people who understand the nuances of our public schools, how we do transportation, how we get kids to school safely and home safely, uh, how we make sure we're looking out for the well-being, both physically and mentally, of not just our students, but also the people who work uh, in our schools. And, and we have to remember, this has been a very trying experience for everyone. And so there is a psychological uh, and mental health aspect to all of this. So you're saying there's actually something more important than just getting business back in business? I think it's important that when we go back to school, we do it in a way in which students are safe, the employees who work in our school are safe, and that we think differently about how we are going to educate our students in the interim. I mean, think about it. We're talking about kindergarten kids. Uh, coming to school, five-year-old, going out to potentially going out to the playground and being told, but you can't go on the playground equipment because we're social distancing. Telling them that you can't touch each other, you can't play tag the way you normally do, but like they did in overseas, I saw a story where they reopened schools and they said, let's do tag by calling it shadow tag. You tag their shadow, you don't tag the student um, to, to again, keep the social distance. Or how we do cafeteria uh, and, and feed students in a way that they're able to socially distance there's a lot to think about here, but what's also we should be thinking about is how are we going to close these education gaps that have grown during distance learning and during the summer? How are we going to make sure we get students back on track in a real powerful way? How do we make sure we're actually talking about the education of students and not a test score? Those are things we want to talk about. That's why you need the experts in the room. And the experts aren't just educators. It's parents. It's students, uh, it's school board members, it's superintendents, it's mental health experts, and it's uh, medical experts. Now, there's been a lot of talk about we'll never be going back to normal. Um, what is the plan here? Is, is there you know, finding that new normal? Yeah, I think we have to look at a whole host of things. We have to look at transportation. We have to look at protective wear. Um, you know, are we going to have all students and teachers in masks all day? Um, are we going to take temperatures as kids and adults come on campus? Are we going to limit the uh, movement in the schools? You know, when kids are out in the hallways, what does that mean? When we have class changes, and, you know, especially in our secondary schools, when kids are going from their English class to their math class, are we going to sanitize the classrooms in between? How are we going to provide lunch? What are we going to do with after-school programs? Those are the kinds of questions we really need to get deep into to make sure that people are safe. And then we also have to talk about, you know, what kind of counseling are we going to give for students in this environment? And I don't even want to call it a new normal. I don't think that's a fair way to approach it. I hope it's not a new normal. But we do have to have that conversation about what does this mean for our kids and for the adults who are there when we may have to do unique things in terms of scheduling to keep the number of kids down in a school at any time? Uh, you know, that's going to be important where they may not see their friends the way they did before. Uh, when we've got kids going home to empty homes, if we don't have sufficient after-school capacities uh, for kids who may stay after school for supervision, what are we going to do in those kinds of scenarios? And those are very real questions. And honestly, I don't think a panel as the governor has uh, of 20, I think it's 24 people or, or something like that, where only three of them have an education background can make that determination. It really needs to be the experts. Is there any doubt in your mind that schools will be back in business this fall? 
I think, you know, I think schools will do learning like we are doing right now. The question is going to be in what capacity, right? Is it going to be, I think it's going to be a spectrum. I think we can end up with, uh, you know, continuing the distance learning. And I think we can be back to a more uh, normal, if you will, set up in our schools or somewhere in between. And I think what districts are trying to figure out now is what are the options, uh, I think it's going to be premature, and I don't think we're going to know till much later in the summer as to which direction school districts are going to go. Uh, but we should absolutely make sure all stakeholders are part of that decision-making process and that we account for all the pitfalls we might see going forward. The Committee on Reopening Our Neighborhood Schools holds its first meeting at 10 this morning. The Committee on Reopening Higher Education holds its first meeting at 1. Their goal is to come up with plans for both by June 2nd. Of course, the real trick is getting state officials to take their recommendations seriously. Trustees at the University of Central Florida meet remotely at 8.30 this morning to talk about reopening the campus after it was shut down by COVID-19. Aides to the governor, the agriculture commissioner, the chief financial officer, and the attorney general are all meeting at 9 so they can prepare for next week's meeting of the state cabinet. The Defense Support Task Force meets by conference call at 9. The Council on Arts and Culture is holding an online meeting at 9. The Council of Presidents at the Florida College System meets by conference call at 10. The Gulf Coast State College Board of Trustees meets by conference call at 10. The Florida Supreme Court releases weekly opinions at 11. The University of North Florida Board of Trustees holds an online meeting at 1. State Senators Randolph Bracey and Linda Stewart of Orlando are holding a virtual press conference at 3 to highlight issues about unemployment. The Florida Department of Agriculture's Medical Cannabis Advisory Committee holds a conference call at 4. And the Florida A&M University Board of Trustees will meet remotely at 5 to talk about COVID-19 operational plans. Finally, it's time to check in with Florida Man, the superhero we certainly don't need but probably deserve. A Florida man who just got out of prison is back in jail after being found naked in someone else's house. A homeowner in Clearwater woke up when his dogs began barking, and he found 32-year-old Jesse Conover standing in the kitchen without a shred of clothing. After being confronted, the intruder grabbed two knives and fled. A police dog found him nearby, hiding under a swing on a screened-in porch. Officers say he appeared to be under the influence of drugs, and he already has a long rap sheet, including charges of strong-arm robbery, aggravated battery, domestic battery, drug position, drunk driving. He had just been released from state prison on May 8th. Finally, a brand new Florida man wants to sell you a jar full of unproven coronavirus supplements for 45 bucks a pop. New Tampa Bay Bucks quarterback and six-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady has announced he's selling a non-FDA-approved homeopathic medley of vitamins that he claims will activate your immune system. It's called Protect. Orlando Weekly blogger Colin Wolf says it's basically the same stuff you find in a $12 pack of Emergency C. That's it for this episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.